Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Welcome, welcome everyone. Uh, The fourth Sunday in Advent. Um, Advent, for those of you uh, who maybe, you know, maybe it's a little bit unfamiliar, you didn't grow up in a tradition like that, or you haven't been here for the past couple weeks, uh, the word literally means uh, coming or arrival. And what we're doing in this season is that we're slowing down, we're not rushing into the Christmas story, but we're specifically allowing the prophets to kind of help us to slow down, to remember the first coming of Christ 2,000 years ago, that in some way we can anticipate the second coming. And that's really what Advent is for. And I love this kind of the irony that when we don't rush into the Christmas season, we actually recognize there's a season before the season, and that's the reason for the season, is that it kind of prepares our hearts so that when we enter into the Christmas story, like we've, we're, we've, we're primed and we're ready for it. Because I think so often what happens is we kind of skip across the surface of, of Christmas. We kind of acknowledge in passing the baby Jesus and the manger and the star and so on and so forth. And we don't really allow ourselves to be immersed in the story to recognize what a revolutionary story it, it truly is. But it's, especially when we read the passages of Scripture that are around that story, it really helps us to sink into what it is that God has done, is doing, and will continue to do through Jesus as his Messiah, as, as the Lord overall in bringing his kingdom. So I'm going to pray, and today uh, we're going to be focusing in on love. So Heavenly Father, uh, we do testify to the truth that you're here and that you're with us. Um, and even as we see in the prophet Isaiah that you, you go before us and you make straight the path, and you, you lower the mountains and you raise the valleys. You prepare this highway for us to meet you, to walk into your presence. Um, Lord, we repent of how complicated we've made that so often, that we, we're the ones that keep holding on to the mountains and the valleys. We're the ones that keep discounting ourselves from your presence because we're too much or we're not enough or whatever it might be. Um, Lord, we repent of our self-righteousness and thinking that it's something that we do or we're holding on to that qualifies us to know you. When in fact, everything that we've ever needed to be qualified to be in your presence is found in Jesus. So come, Holy Spirit. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Father God. Anoint each of your dear ones that are here right now. Open our hearts to receive the kind of truth that you need us to receive in this Advent season so that we can be transformed that next week when we arrive in this Christmas story, we're ready to see it with new eyes. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we've been looking this year at the particular themes that we engage with in the Advent season. We began with hope, we moved into peace, last week we did joy, and today we're doing love. And I hope that this past week you've been really contemplating joy and the difference between joy and happiness. 
and recognizing that when we find joy in our being rooted in Jesus as our source and as our destination, it actually blesses the moments of happiness. How many of you had a, a moment of happiness this week? Did anybody, anybody have had? Oh, look at that. Great. And did you notice? And I think that's the blessing, right? It's like you notice happiness more and you bless it. And it steals you up for those moments of trial and the moments of difficulty. Um, and it's like every part of life is blessed when we find that joy. And then joy being a journey that progressively more day by day, week by week, we're more grounded in that reality of Jesus. And it steals us for the good times and the bad alike. So today we're talking about love, which is an incredibly hard thing to preach on, if anybody was ever thinking about getting into the gig. Uh, because there's so much you could say. And even when you kind of narrow it down to like Advent, Christmas, like it's still really difficult. But I actually found a tremendous amount of direction coming out of Isaiah 40. So what I'm going to attempt to do, I'm hoping to pull this off, we're going to tie in um, the prophet Isaiah, we're going to talk about John the Baptist, and we're going to talk about Cornell West. Anybody know Cornell West? All right, so he's one of my favorites. And um, it was really neat. Uh, a couple weeks ago, our leadership got together, and we're praying for vision for 2022, and I'm really excited with what we heard, you know, but we're kind of comparing notes. Like, we go away, we pray, we come together, and it's like, what did the Lord show you? What did he speak? And some people have visions, some people have scriptures, some people have a word or whatever it is. And one of the things that came out of it, someone said, um, we need to lean more into the saints. And those are those who have come before us. That have, that have walked the walk, that we can draw inspiration from their stories. But they said we also need to be paying attention to the modern saints. And I consider Cornell West uh, to be a modern saint, someone who very much bears us listening carefully to what he has to speak to us because he has a lot to say about love. So I'm going to attempt to weave together Isaiah, John the Baptist, and Cornell West today. But this is where we're going to go. Advent reminds us that God's kingdom of love is always reshaping the wilderness of the world, okay? So what are we talking about when we're talking about love, specifically God's love, that it's reshaping, it's transforming, and it's walking, in, entering in. I love this vision in Isaiah of like, prepare the way, like entering into the wilderness and doing something almost um, geologically to the terrain, that the world is a rough place, Amen. The world is a wilderness. It's untamed. It's kind of wild, and it overwhelms us at times. But it is specifically the love of God that enters into that place, enters into the wilderness, and begins to do something amazing with it. So last week, we kind of focused in on Mary and the joy that she had um, in, in the, the prophecy that she was given by the angel Gabriel in um, you know, entering into the household of her cousin Elizabeth, both of them, um, with these extraordinary pregnancies that they're kind of, they're, they're, they're getting ready to birth this, this new hope, this new world that was going to come through Jesus um, and partially through John the Baptist. So I thought this week we'd focus in on John the Baptist. So if you remember from the story last week, uh, Mary goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth. She enters in, and, and the, the neat thing being, you know, um, Elizabeth was too old to have a child, and that was the miracle. And Mary was too young to have a child, and that was the miracle. And you can imagine the potential family tension that would have been there if one of them enters in and they're pregnant and the other one's not, and it's real awkward. But instead, it's this moment of joy. And the scripture tells us that as soon as Mary enters in, the baby in Elizabeth's womb leaps for joy. 
And so they're probably, we think like John the Baptist, like it's Jesus' cousin. He's about six months older. So these two, they grew up together. But in that moment of recognition, even in vitro, John leaps for joy because he recognizes that he's in the presence of the Messiah. And I love that. And it stands to reason that these two boys probably grew up together. How many of you are going to see your cousins this week? How many of your cousins leap for joy when you enter into the room? (laughs) You know? But I think John just intuitively knew who Jesus was his whole life. And some of you might know the story of John. So he grows up and he kind of reenacts these, these old prophets in the way that he begins his ministry. He lives out in the wilderness, again, the rough place, the untamed place. Um, he dresses like a crazy person. He eats crazy foods. Um, and he's calling the people of Israel to repentance. And he even tell, it says this in the scriptures. He says, mine is a ministry of repentance. And we've talked about repentance a lot in our community. It means uh, to rethink. Uh, it also means to come home, depending on your kind of root word for it. And I think I love both of those. Like John was saying to Israel, like, you need to change the way that you're thinking about God and what he's doing in the world. Um, and you also need to come back home to him because you've wandered away. And so John was baptizing people in the Jordan River. But he quick, he's very quick to point out to them, he said, okay, so what I'm doing is a ministry of repentance, but I'm just, I'm just like clearing the space. I'm just preparing the way, but someone else is going to come after me whose sandals I'm not even worthy of tying. He says, mine is a ministry of repentance, but his is a baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I went back and I reread a, a lot of the portions of John's story this week, and I, it was amazing to note, even in that story, where John's talking about the baptism, he says Jesus is going to come and he's going to, pre- or he's going to give the, the uh, baptism of Holy Spirit and fire. And that's the one where it says like his winnowing fork is in his hand and he's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. Now, a lot of you probably grew up with that sounding like a threat, right? Jesus is going to come judge the world and he's going to burn up all the bad, bad people and he's going to preserve all the good people. Has anybody else grew up with that kind of thing? So if you read that in context, what's he saying? He's saying, I'm going to baptize people for repentance, but he's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. So that winnowing fork stuff is about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit baptism do? It purges us, right? The refining fire of the Holy Spirit burns out of us all the impurities. Like chaff is just like the gunk that gets stuck on the wheat seeds. And what they do is they would kind of grab it with a fork, throw it up in the air. The chaff kind of floats away. The seed falls down to the ground. So it's a cleansing it's actually a preparation. So I just want to, like, if anybody's kind of freaked out about, like, the winnowing fork stuff, like, relax. Because um, the Holy Spirit is always a fire, amen? Like, the Holy, if we submit to it, it's a refining fire. And if we resist the Spirit, it's a burning fire. But that's not because it's the action of the Holy Spirit. It's our response to the Spirit. That's a whole aside. We'll do that some other time. But I think it's really important <laughs> to recognize John was preparing the way for Jesus' ministry, which is this ministry of Holy Spirit, of of a refining fire, of purifying us, of cleansing us of our sins, getting all that gunk off of our hearts so that we can be the people that God has created us to be. But this whole kind of song and dance that John is doing, what he's doing is he's reenacting those Old Testament prophets, and, and really what, he, what we're going to look at today is that John was the last of the old prophets. He was the last of the old ways. And this is the story that we're going to be jumping into today to really recognize um, that that is the call for John. So this is Matthew 11. We're going to read the first 15 verses. 
After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. So John, because of his ministry, and he had some very bold things to say specifically about uh, the king at the time, who was kind of a puppet king for the Roman Empire. He was very, very critical of this guy, and so he gets thrown into prison. And if you know what happens in John's story, like not long after this, he actually gets beheaded by the king for some of his kind of pronouncements against that kind of status quo royal sense of entitlement and brokenness. So John's in prison, and there's two ways of reading this. Some people say, oh, John is trying to like, point people back to Jesus as the Messiah, so he's sending his disciples to say, y'all need to pivot to him. I think it's actually far more human than that. I think John is sitting in prison, and he's saying, did I, did I miss it? Is this really, is this how this is supposed to go? Like, I'm, I'm in jail, and I'm probably going to die, and that's my cousin. Like, we grew up together, you know, like, I've seen him at his worst. You know what I mean? I, I'm sure, of course, Jesus never sinned, but, you know, when you're little kids, you just get into little kid things, right? John's better born, born witness to all of that. And I just wonder if John is sitting there in prison looking at the ministry of Jesus from far and going, I don't think this is how this was supposed to turn out. So I think John is actually doubting the, the story because he's stuck. This wasn't the plan. This wasn't how it was supposed to turn out. And I love that when the disciples come, like John's disciples come to Jesus and they're like, are you the guy? Like, is this, it doesn't seem like this is how it's supposed to work out. Jesus' response, as it so often is when people ask Jesus to, to kind of prove who he is, he points to the material evidence of the love of God on the move. He says, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. So he doesn't give some sort of philosophical diatribe, he doesn't like give his titles and his credentials, he points to the material reality of the kingdom of heaven on the move, which we would interpret as the love of God. The love of God is the fabric of the kingdom. And I think what this says to me in two ways, number one, it's actually good news, Okay, that the love of God is not, it's not the kingdom, it's, it's not good advice, it's not a nice philosophy uh, of life, it's not this kind of esoteric, like, oh, Christmas spirit, and you're like, what is that? And you're like, lights? I don't know. And you're like, what are you talking, you know, it's not like this, it's very, very tangible, and that's what makes it good news. And I think for love to be love, it has to be tangible. But I think we've been so poisoned by sentimentality in our culture that we don't actually know what love is. Pause for effect. <laughs> and this is one of the things that I love about the ministry of Cornell West. This is my favorite quote from him. Uh, you guys have heard me use this many times. He says, justice is what love looks like in public. Tenderness is what love feels like in private. Now, both of those are tangible realities 
And I love that there's one that kind of speaks to like a communal, national, global reality. That's what we call justice. But tenderness speaks to that, that, that interpersonal relationship, like the one-on-oneness between two people or between a person and God. And I think for love to be love, it has to speak to both of those realities. And I, I am very suspicious, and I want you to be very suspicious of any kind of gospel that does not have some sense of global justice attached to it. It's got to be pur- the Holy Spirit come purge the evangelical church of this idea that the gospel is just about these spiritual realities, that God doesn't have an opinion about creation he doesn't have an opinion about human bodies. He doesn't have an opinion about how we treat whole groups of people. Like, we've, 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 there's this whole false gospel out there that says, at the end of the day, it's just about me and Jesus. I mean, and I hope that when, as we've been reading just, just the prophet Isaiah, we're seeing time and again, no, this seems to have some sort of consequence for, like, how human beings arrange themselves. There seems to be some sort of very tangible reality it's not, this isn't spiritual language in the sense that it's not related to material reality. Like, justice is real. But it has to flow from worship of God. And so what we see in kind of one half of the church is like, it's just personal relationship with Jesus. Like, God has no opinions on justice or human organization. But on the other side, we say, well, we've got all these structures and these things that we need to do as human beings to kind of create the utopia but this is the kingdom without a king, and this is the king without a kingdom. And it's the only gospel is the gospel that merges both of those things. But I am also very wary of good news that does not have that tangible personal element to it as well. We can't abdicate. And I think that's actually the blessing of the evangelical movement is that it brought us back to this place of a personal relationship with God that it does something to us as individuals. This is a God that we can each individually learn to hear from, who does something inside of each one of us. And each of you, you're going to have a natural proclivity to believe in kind of uh, like a, a social justice gospel or a personal gospel. But I'm here to, the good news is you don't have to choose. <laughs> it's like, I want all of that. Like, I want all of that. I think you guys want all of that. But here's the problem. Because we were so confused about what the good news is or what the ministry of Jesus was all about is that we've, we've fallen into this trap that we find in the surrounding culture where we're so stuck in sentimentality and thinking that that is what love is. That it's thoughts and prayers. It's good feelings. Like these are the things that we get caught in and we get so caught in sentimentality that we can't show actual evidence of love. I'm very wary when people are just like, well, you're loved. I'm like, okay, cool. How? Show me. Like, don't tell me that you love me. Show me that you love me. And that's what we see in Jesus time and again is he's constantly showing and demonstrating love. He doesn't, I don't even know, maybe there's a scripture in there. Dad, is there a scripture where Jesus goes, I love you? Like, I don't know. Maybe it's in there, in the Greek. I don't know. But like, he was always just like showing it. He was doing stuff and that was the evidence of love. And that's when we know that we've mistaken sentimentality for love that we talk a lot of love language, but we don't actually show it. And in fact, I think we actually often talk it so that we don't have to touch the material reality of our lives. We don't actually have to examine the way that we live our lives and say, do I really love people? Am I really for justice? Like, am I, is there any tangible evidence in my life that Jesus can say to John's disciples, 
here's what you're seeing. The blind are receiving sight, the lame are walking, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Like, can I, as someone who claims to be a loving person, point to any tangible evidence of that when it comes to my one-on-one relationships and tenderness or when it comes to my relationship to the world at large through justice? And I think a lot of times we're just convincing ourselves that we're loving people because we've been caught up in sentimentality. I think that's the challenge Jesus has for us. Do you love me? Well, show me. He gives us the story of the Good Samaritan, for example, right? Many of you know that story. A man is beaten up by robbers. On the, he's left for dead on the highway, the side of the road. Two religious elite kind of come by, the people that should know the heart of God, but they don't want to get his cooties on them, so they just keep walking. And then a Samaritan comes along, a guy who does not have the right view of God. He doesn't have the right doctrine or dogma. He doesn't go to church every Sunday. He's not in a Bible study. And he's the guy who shows up and actually shows tangible love to this guy. Like he, he, he kind of dresses his wounds. He takes him to a hotel. He gets him checked in for like a week. And he's like, anything that is charges, let me, like it's tangible. And I think the biggest point in that story is, hey, religious people, those of you who claim to know God, if you're not going to do it, God's going to find somebody else. Now, about a year ago, uh, on a podcast with N.T. Wright, we're not going to get through a sermon without me mentioning N.T. Wright. Come on, get real. Somebody asked him this question. Should we be for or against Black Lives Matter? That was the question that was written into him. And automatically everybody here is like, where are we going with this? And it's like these silly binaries that we get stuck in because we keep listening to the culture around us where it's like, you have to be this or that. Like, here's the table. It's already been set for you. Just choose one. And we're not thinking like Christians. And his response was phenomenal. He said, if you have a problem... Now, obviously, there's a difference between the organization and the movement, and I think that's a lot of, like, the red herring, which to me was just, like, a non-issue. Like, are you supporting this organization? Are you supporting this general movement for racial justice or whatever it might be? Um, but he said, here's the, here's the thing. He said, when God's people don't stand up for justice, someone else is going to fill that gap. And they don't have the, maybe they don't have the clearest view of what God means when God says justice. So it's less about, like, do you support this movement? Do you not support this movement? Are you for that thing? Are you for that thing? It's why are you abdicating the responsibility to be on the front lines of the conversations in our society where you can actually speak to, yeah, you can clap for that. Like, we can get Pentecostal, sure. Like, it, and it subverted the whole thing. It wasn't about, like, do you support this thing? Do you deny that? It was like, where are you positioning yourself when it comes to the kingdom of love? And are you letting other people do the job of the church? Are you abdicating responsibility to be on the front lines of the conversation? Or is there, some, like a, is there a fire inside of you that says, I've got to get in on this? Like, I want to have tangible evidence of the love of God flow through me. The story continues on in Matthew 11. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Now, the reed, uh, that's, a, that's an image that the, the, the king um, of Judea at the time, like that was on the coin. That was his symbol. So Jesus is very specifically saying, like, 
Were you looking for another King Herod? Like, were you looking for more political elites to, to lead you and to inform you of what you're supposed to believe or do or say? No, you didn't. You went out into the woods to find this crazy person who's been eating locusts and wild honey and wears, like, a, a bearskin rug, you know? Like, that's the guy you were looking for. Not bearskin. What am I talking about? Sheep. We, uh, when I was a kid, we used to have, I don't, what did we call them? It was, like, All Saints Day, and we'd, you'd dress up like a Bible character, and mom and dad had this really beautiful sheepskin rug, and that just got tied around my waist in a belt. And it's like, you could be Elijah, you could be John the Baptist, pick whichever, you know. Um, but it's like, you weren't looking for the status quo political elite person to be the, the be-all, end-all answer. Like, you guys are going out into the wilderness for a reason to look at this crazy person because there's something in his message that resonated with you. So what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, and this is talking about you, whoever is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Like you're, you're better off than John the Baptist. First of all, you're not in prison and you're not about to lose your head we're talking smack about the king. But, like, if you're in the kingdom of heaven, like, if Jesus is Lord over your life, like, you're greater than John the Baptist. And this is, many of you know, this is my favorite verse in the entire New Testament. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. I always imagine, I know it's like later in the story, but the one guy, Peter, cuts his ear off and he's like, that's not funny. <laughs> you know what I mean? So what's happening here? John was positioned, he was the inside of the outside. He's the last of the prophets. Like all these prophets are, they're, they're kind of speaking these, like they're writing poems and they're speaking these like beautiful things that are kind of drawing Israel out of a sense of numbness that they've been stuck in the status quo of a world where human beings try to organize themselves. And they've become so used to being subjugated and oppressed that they don't feel anymore. And so the prophets are enacting these symbols and they're writing these poems to get Israel to feel again, to soften their hearts to the reality of God so that they can pivot back and they can believe in a better future. Remember, this is what we talked about with hope. It's like hope, real hope, only comes through grief. When we look at the world around us and we go, this isn't okay. I don't think this is the way God wants things to be. And when you look at your own life, your personal life, and you go, where I'm at right now is not okay. Like, I don't want to be here. I don't think this is what God wants for me. It's only when we begin to lament those things that we can actually have hope for a better future, both personally and communally. And so John becomes the last in that train of prophets before the actual coming of the kingdom. And the harsh word that Jesus has for his cousin is to say, you're the last, like you're the best of the old thing. You're the last one in a long line of people who've been preparing the way, but now I'm here and I'm administering your kingdom and on this side of the grave, you, you can't enter into it yet. No, I believe that John in the resurrection will enter the kingdom of heaven and he'll receive the thing that you and I have already been blessed with now. But that verse, I think this is, this is one of the, like, this is where like, I get real dorky about biblical translation too. So this is the verse. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven 
and the one I just read to you, has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. But there's a little asterisk in the NIV, and when you go and you look at it, it, it says you could also do it this way. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and violent people have been raiding it. Now, those are two very, very, very different translations, okay? So this is like when people say to me, like, oh, well, I don't trust the translations of man. I just trust the Holy Spirit. And I'm like, all right. I didn't know you know Koine Greek, but good for you. Because uh, we don't even know what it says half the time. And if you go and you look at all the English translations, it's probably about 60-40 split. Is the kingdom the thing that is being subjected to violence, like violence is being done against the kingdom? Or is the kingdom that which is f being violent, that is forcefully advancing? And the reason that this is my favorite verse in the New Testament is that I think it's probably a little bit of both. Like, either way, it works. And it changes the meaning of the second thing about the violent people that have been raiding it. Like, is the kingdom bearing, the, like, the violence of the world, taking it in because people are attacking it, they feel threatened? Or is it the kingdom that is the violent move against the violence of the world? Because what do we call violence against violence? That's what we call love. You see, if we're just continuing to play the same game as the world, and we just continue to dish out the same thing, like, we're just maintaining the status quo. But to, the true violence against the violence of the world is that kingdom of love. And I think then it radically shifts the last piece, the violent people have been raiding it. Who are these violent people? That's you and I. We're the people who like, we're so single-minded in our pursuit of the kingdom that we're violent. Like we're gonna latch our teeth onto the kingdom like we're holding on for dear life and we're going wherever it might take us because we're so sick and tired of the world being the way that it is. That we can maybe begin to imagine that there's actually a better world out there, but it can only come when Jesus is Lord over all. So violence against violence is kingdom love, that we are zealous people for the love of God. Because what does love do? Love disarms us. Love disarms us. When we have really encountered love, we start to relax a little bit more in the presence of love. All of our defenses, all of our coping mechanisms, like it's not just that they, like they just don't work anymore when we've truly encountered love. And in that disarming kingdom love, we die to that protective, fearful ego that made us violent people in the first place. And so all of those defenses that we have against other people or against God, when we witness that disarming love of Jesus, it gets us to drop all of the ways in which we've just been coping, where we've just been trying to survive in the wilderness. But it also upturns societies. Disarming love upturns all of the oppressive structures that human beings create when we try to order the world. And we know this from all of the greats that have ch genuinely changed the world for the better. It's not because they showed up with a bigger stick. It's not because they showed up with a better philosophy of like how do we organize people. Like I've said before, every government system probably works if it weren't for all the damn people that are involved in them, each of them, you know? But it's disarming love on a communal scale that radically shifts societies. And it's tangible stuff. It's blind receiving sight, it's deaf hearing, it's the dead being raised, it's good news being proclaimed to the poor, these tangible things, the disarming love of God advancing in the world that upturns society. But again, if, we're, if sentimentality 
halts us from recognizing are we actually loving people on a personal level. I think sentimentality also makes us think that the, like, how things are now is, is fine. And that brings me to my second quote from Cornell West. He says, to be popular is to be well-adjusted to injustice and indifference. Ugh, can we just sit on that one for a second? To be popular is to be well-adjusted to injustice and indifference. Put that in your eggnog on a Christmas Eve. That's not the kind of popularity Christians ought to be interested in. The benchmark of the way of the cross is to love against the grain. We should be very wary of, first of all, our uh, appeal to popularity. When somebody is popular or when a movement is popular or whatever it might be, because it's probably actually just appealing to the way things already are. Because if you want to be popular, if you want to be a King Herod, like you just maintain the system the way the system is already working. Because everybody's already bought into the system or else they think they have. They've abdicated that responsibility for thinking critically or thinking Christianly. And so usually, generally speaking, popular people are popular because they're, they're maintaining the status quo. And that's not what we're called to. The benchmark for us as kingdom people is that we love against the grain. You want to know if you tangibly love, are people in your life confused by the way in which you live your life? Like, is it so subversive? They're like, what is it about you? Like, the way in which you handle your money, the way in which you handle your time, the way in which you treat other people, the things that you'll say yes to, the things that you'll say no to, the kind of jobs that you'll agree to take, the kind of jobs that you won't. Like, you just seem to be so informed by this radical, upside-down, subversive love that people are actually shocked because you're not playing the game anymore. You're not just appealing to the status quo. You're not in it just to get your piece of the pie and hopefully get out of life alive. You've been so radically transformed by the disarming love of Christ that everything that you do tangibly speaks to a different reality, a new burst, like a new reality bursting forth in the midst of the old one. Sentimentality doesn't affect the world. Just talking about Christmas spirit or, you know, the reason for the season or any of that stuff, that's all fine in and of itself, but that doesn't change the world. And I think that's why Time and again, because the, our church has been so lulled to sleep with status quo and maintaining the structures of the world as they have been over the past hundred years. That's why we haven't seen the change that we desperately desire, the deepest part of ourselves, because we've missed what the Christmas story is all about. When we're reading Mary and she's like, governments are going to be toppled and the poor are going to get what they need. And you're like, that's Christmas? Yeah, that's Christmas. But we so missed it because we're so comfortable. And we're so full. And we like the status quo. We like the structure of the way because it kind of works for us. You know, most of us in this room, we're like, we're middle class. Like, we're fine. We, have, we're a, like, we are the 1% globally. You know what I mean? And we've missed this because we've confused love for sentimentality. So, coming back to Isaiah 40, what is the evidence of the love of God on the move? What does it look like when that kingdom of love advances, that when it enters into the wilderness and the wild places of the world, that God's love isn't merely sentimental, it's tangible. God's love raises valleys and lowers the mountains and makes our brief lives worth living. 
this week, Tyler and I got coffee um, up by UCF where he works. And we were talking about this, like how, you know, when you, you grew up with this idea of like the gospel and the good news and Jesus and the kingdom and all these things. And, and so many people have believed in this kind of like airy other world, like I pray this prayer and then I get to go to heaven when I die. I don't know what heaven is. It doesn't sound that appealing to me, honestly, but I just kind of twiddle my thumbs until the end of it. Um, and we haven't, many, so many people haven't been given a radical vision of what it looks like when the kingdom breaks into our world personally and communally, but we don't see the actual evidence of the love of God because we've never learned how to like, open our lives to receive it. And we were talking about just like on our respective journeys as we've been delving deeper into the kingdom, maybe kind of disassembling some bad antiquated thoughts or picking up good ideas about what God is like, like looking at this and going, oh my goodness, this is so real. Like when you see justice in the world, like real justice, kingdom justice, when you see God's justice on the news and you're like, oh, yeah, that's it, because you already know what it looks like, right? You're like, that's justice. Like that, that restoration that just happened, like that's, that's God's justice. Or like in your story where like there's this moment in your past that's just like broken you and shattered you and it's held you back and it's made you fearful in relationship or self-loathing or whatever it is. And all of a sudden that thing is broken and it has no more uh, hold over you and you're moving as a more free person. You're like, that's the tangible love of God in my story. This is, it's so material. It's so tangible, the love of God the kingdom. Like this, it's real. It's not just good feelings and, and holiday cards, but it's something that actually happens to us. It's something that happens to the world, but it's something also that happens through us. And what do we see again in the prophet Isaiah? We see there's God's governance. When God takes charge of the world, he begins to bring it back to its original intention. We see in Isaiah, we see this call for justice rupturing our status quo. And that's what he means when the mountains are being lowered. Those are people, are people in uh, positions of oppression and power are being brought low. And then the people that are the valleys, the people that have been overlooked or oppressed or taken advantage of, they're being raised up. And it's not a subversion. Mountains don't become valleys. Valleys become mountains because that's what we tend to do as human beings. It's that the path has been made straight. I love there's a line in one of the Psalms where David says, on the level ground in the congregation, I would praise the Lord. When we look at the vision and revelation of every nation, tribe, and tongue on the level together, there is no hierarchy within the human family because we're all worshiping God in our various ways. That's justice. It breaks open our, our systems of oppression and it brings people back into positions of dignity. It sees the humanity of all people. And I have this sneaking suspicion that these, these four ideas that we're looking at in the Advent season, hope, peace, joy, and love, they are politically audacious things for us to believe in, to be zealous for, to sink our teeth into, to say this has radical connotations, not just for me personally, not just for us as a community, but globally. Like if this took root, what might actually change? I also love that Isaiah begins this poem in, these, in the beginning and the ending with these words, comfort, tenderness, and gentleness. Because the love is, love is not just about justice. Love is about 
that personal aspect of it, the personal dimension of love. And I think far from being a tragic indictment against humanity when Isaiah says all people are like grass, he's saying your life is so temporary, but it's precious. Like you are precious to God. And he puts you on this earth for just a little while. Like you don't have a lot of time. And that doesn't mean that you're not valuable. It means you're extraordinarily valuable. And you were put on this planet to receive love and to offer love. That's what this is all about. But when we miss that with our busy schedules and our, you know, whatever things that we use to distract us, like we're missing why we're here in the first place. And I love this idea that when God takes charge, he's still a good shepherd. He's still tender to us. He still draws us in and holds us close to him. Now, how does God tangibly love the world? Through you. Like, you are the advancement of the kingdom. And so what happens here when we gather together on a Sunday, when you guys gather together throughout the week, is that we're enacting this new world, the new kingdom of love as we gather to worship Jesus together. Again, we need that aspect of worship in order to give us a proper view of justice and of personal salvation, like what it is, the healing that God has for you as an individual. But then we go back out into the world to enact the love of God. And wouldn't it be amazing if there were reports all over the city of these strange people that are City Beautiful Church and they just go around doing things that don't seem to fit. Like they're not buying the line. They're not interested in being popular anymore. But they're doing things that seem to go against the grain to, to subvert the status quo. Like there's these people at City Beautiful Church and they, they, they give freely and they love people that they're supposed to hate. And they don't buy into the lies of the society that keep everybody subjugated and, and supposedly content. And if that was your witness, and that was the kingdom advancing in our time and in our place. Our final quote from Brother West. We have to be militants for kindness, subversive for sweetness, and radicals for tenderness. Don't tell me you love me. Show it to me. Because for love to be love, it must be transformative. It must be tangible. It must be real. No more sentiment. No more saccharine images of squishy this, that, and the other. Like, let's actually love each other. And let's love the world. So I want to invite you to stand with me. And we're going to enter back into worship to allow that kingdom of love to continue to wash over us, to transform us, so that we can go out and participate in God's transforming of the world. And I'm going to invite you to the table. And we still haven't gotten this perfect yet. We're, someday it's going to happen. But eventually everybody gets to the table. I think that there's, like a, there's a beautiful metaphor in it there. It's like it's messy and we're bumping into each other. But we've got two stations on the edges here and there's one here in the middle. But I want you to recognize, like, when you come to the Lord's table and you receive the Holy Communion, his body and blood, that's the tangible evidence of the love of God for you. That's like, it's not a philosophy of life. It's not 
a, a, a holiday card. Like it's, this is what love looks like. This is what John tells us, right? Like in First John, he says, this is what love looks like. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us and gave himself up for us. He says, if, if that's true, then that's what we're going to do for one another. So when you come to the table, when you receive the tangible love of God, I want you to, to recognize the sacredness of that moment, that this thing that was previously hidden to you is now being revealed, and it might have the power to radically change you, to heal you, to save you, to bring you just a little bit more into that radical kingdom of love than you were when you first walked into this room. And so, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the witness of John the Baptist. But, Lord, we also recognize that even though he was the greatest of the prophets, we are still greater because we have this moment, we have this opportunity to receive the tangible kingdom of love, to allow it to do something to us. And so, Lord, as we come to your table, as we take the, the, the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, as we take them into ourselves, would you do something deep within us? Transform us, disarm us, heal us, save us, so that we can participate in the salvation of the whole world. We pray all of these things in the strong and the perfect and the blessed and the loving name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's come to the table. Start in the front and work our way back. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.